You are listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C19. From Letters to Cartas, Latinx Writing in Early America. This episode explores how letters or cartas expounded universalist notions of political self-determination by cultivating intimate states of brotherhood or friendship across the Americas during the 19th century, sometimes reproducing and sometimes dislocating the racial, economic, and gender hierarchies of those places with and against contemporary Latinx cultural producers. Letters from Philadelphia, Early Latino Literature and the Trans-American Elite, Professor Rodrigo Lasso's recently published book, examines this archive to retrace the migrant steps of revolutionaries and writers between roughly 1790 to 1830, a group he calls the Trans-American Elite. immerse yourself for a moment in the thoughts of a Latin American traveler to the Young Republic of the United States. Carta de José María Heredia, Filadelfia, abril 15 de 1824. Diez días a que estoy en esta famosa Filadelfia. Su situación es muy ventajosa, pues está fundada entre los ríos de la Huer y Skulkil, el primero de los cuales la sirve de puerto, y el segundo la provee de aguas para el uso de sus habitantes. Mil veces habrás oído decir que es una de las ciudades más regulares del mundo, y es verdad. Todas sus calles están tiradas a cordel y se cortan en ángulos rectos. Las que corren paralelas con los ríos se llaman primera, segunda, etc., hasta la décima tercia, y terminan en la, en la magnífica plaza que se llama Central Square, porque en efecto será dentro de algún tiempo el centro de la ciudad. Greetings, saludos. My name is Carmen Lamas. I am an assistant professor of English and American Studies at the University of Virginia. And I'm Kirsten Silva Cruz, professor of literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Joining us is Professor Rodrigo Lasso to discuss his important new book, Letters from Philadelphia, Early Latino Literature and the Trans-American Elite, recently published by the University of Virginia Press. Dr. Lasso is professor of English at the University of California, Irvine, and is also the author of Writing to Cuba, Filibustering, and Cuban Exiles in the United States, and co-editor with Professor Jesse Aleman, who is at the University of New Mexico, of the groundbreaking collection, The Latino 19th Century. Dr. Lasso, thank you for taking the time to share your work with us today. You just read one of the letters you write about in your new book. In that letter, we hear Jose Maria Heredia speak so exuberantly and poetically about Philadelphia, its streets, its buildings. To begin, 
Would you share with us how the idea of focusing on letters, or cartas, came about and how it turned into a book-length study? As I was reading through the books, the pamphlets, and the periodicals published in Philadelphia, I kept coming across the word cartas in the titles. So letters, cartas de un americano, cartas del pidio, cartas políticas y morales. These were the types of titles that were coming up. So these writers were connecting to an enlightenment tradition of letters as a way to circulate ideas about a variety of topics. So letters were, on the one hand, things that you write to someone else, like an epistolary letter, but there were also collections of thoughts that were published. And it struck me that these books were being sent out like an epistolary communication in an effort to create a connection between Philadelphia and what was then Spanish America. So writing someone a letter implies both separation and, and connection. Being far away from someone prompts the writing, meaning that uh, the letter is a way to connect with that person, to bring that person about to your thoughts and feelings. And so these Books called cartas were a way to build community across vast regions, communities that would lead to independent countries that supported Republican governments. Dr. John Moran Gonzalez, the J. Frank Doby Regents Professor of American and English Literature at the University of Texas at Austin and Director of the Center for Mexican American Studies, is also joining us. His books include Border Renaissance, the Texas Centennial and the Emergence of Mexican-American Literature, and The Troubled Union, Expansionist Imperatives in Post-Reconstruction American Novels. Professor Moran Gonzalez, how would you place letters from Philadelphia in the context of other recent studies of print and manuscript culture, especially those of minoritized populations who historically have not had easy access to writing? Letters from Philadelphia posits a historically situated understanding of the multiple complexities involved in the creation and circulation of specific ideas within a nascent trans-American capitalist print culture. This formulation allows Dr. Lasso to examine the cultural productions of early 19th century Spanish-American writers residing in La Famosa Philadelphia without reductively flattening the complexities of their social interpolations vis-a-vis -vis their positioning as criollo elites. In other words, he invites us to consider a radically different moment in trans-American ideation in which the United States is not yet the neo-imperialist hegemon, but rather an imperfect ideal for hemispheric republicanism, in which Spanish is not a foreign language, but rather one crucial to the transit of republican ideals throughout the Americas vis-a-vis -vis its economic correlative, laissez-faire capitalism, and in which translation is not a secondary or derivative operation, but rather vital creative activity in navigating the universal enlightenment ideals of republicanism with the specific local conditions of governance across the Americas. Letters from Philadelphia mines multiple archives to retrace the migrant steps of revolutionaries and writers between roughly 1790 to 1830, a group Professor Lasso calls the trans-American elite. The letters or cartas in question range from translations, political catechisms, and love letters. 
They were both communications between individuals and political literary manifestos intended for wider distribution. These cartas, you argue, expounded universalist notions of political self-determination by cultivating intimate states of brotherhood or friendship across the Americas. Dr. Lasso, who was one of the most fascinating figures you encountered? Do you have a favorite? One of the most interesting books which I studied was a collection of letters by Manuel Lorenzo de Vidaurre. It's called Cartas Americanas, Políticas y Morales. So these were questions, letters that were taken up questions of morality as well as politics. So Vidaurre was a jurist and legislator in Peru, and he had to leave his country for political reasons. So he made his way to Philadelphia where he published a collection of these letters. Now, what was fascinating about them is that in one letter, you would have a discussion of some political topics, such as the Constitution and how to formulate a Constitution. The next letter might have something about slavery and the necessity of abolishing slavery. And then you'd get these highly, highly personal letters about an affair that he had with his sister-in-law. So, on the one hand is... Very political. On the other hand, it's very personal. And that's where this kind of intimate connection that the letter implies comes into play. At first, I thought that um, Vidaurre was using this letter to this woman as some kind of um, conceit uh, to talk about the political questions. But on further research, I learned that, no, he really did have an affair with his um, sister-in-law, and it was quite public. So you'd have pastors, and he, was, he describes himself as a wolf who defiled her innocence. Um, and let me read you one uh, passage from one of the letters, and this is my translation, um, so you get a sense for the kind of thing that he was writing. 129 days have passed since our souls and our bodies united, and we swore a true marriage in the eternal connection of our hearts. So very romantic, very much about like this passion that he had for this woman. Um, and so as a result, we see that he was fashioning himself as a Rousseau type of figure who could write about politics as well as um, uh, a kind of uh, sexualized experience. But to me, what this book told me was that this was a man with a lot of privilege. Not only could he go to Philadelphia and publish his books, which wasn't easy at the time, but he could do so in a way that put all of his personal life uh, into the public eye. Um, and that kind of privilege is one of the reasons why I called these writers the trans-American elite. They had tremendous resources, both intellectual and economic, to um, take on these kinds of projects. What was the biggest aha moment you had while researching this book? Or what was the biggest unsolved mystery? Some of the most interesting moments are when we see the figures who are politically progressive for their time. They're revolutionaries in that they're trying to overthrow the colonial government, but they do not have the political sensibilities of progressives today. So for example, we see Felix Varela, one of the great figures in the history of, of U.S. and Cuba, and a fighter for independence, but he says some horribly misogynistic things. Along that line, Vicente Pasoscanqui, a journalist of indigenous background, uses civilization, the discourse of civilization, to say negative things about indigenous people. So these types of statements show the contradictions inherent in a politics of liberation. 
History is not always going to speak in the language of the present or say what we want it to say. Professor Sandra Gustafson joins us to discuss Dr. Lasso's book. Hello, this is Sandra Gustafson. I am a member of the faculty at the University of Notre Dame and the author of Imagining Deliberative Democracy in the Early American Republic. That study has a chapter called Modern Republicanism in the Atlantic World that focuses on three figures with unexpected connections to one another, Daniel Webster, the Marquis de Lafayette, and Simone Bolivar. It's from the perspective of that chapter and that study as a whole that I'll be engaging Rodrigo Lazo's wonderful new study, Letters from Philadelphia, Early Latino Literature, and the Trans-American Elite. Professor Gustafson, how do these Spanish-language texts from Philadelphia change the way we look at early American literature, especially in the way that democracy has been narrated through the American Revolution and its aftermath? One of the things that fascinated me when I was researching Imagining Deliberative Democracy was the discovery that a number of intellectuals, uh, mostly Boston-based, associated with the periodical North American Review, took in the revolutions in the Spanish Americas. These essays offer a useful counterpoint to some of the works that Lazo considers, particularly in his chapter two on the trans-American elite. He opens this chapter with a discussion of the funeral of Manuel Torres, who is described as with the moniker, the Franklin of South America. Lazo notes how in one of the funeral tributes to Torres, the author inverts a narrative of U.S. revolutionary influence on Spanish America, by proposing that Tories had also enlightened the U.S. government with his belief in hemispheric commonality. He discusses how throughout Philadelphia letters we see moments in which the trans-American elite consider themselves to be working in the trajectory or spirit of U.S. anti-colonial thinkers, and he concludes that this identification leads less to a common Creole experience than to a trans-American self-conception, and thus their adoption of the self-description Americano in the hemispheric sense. It's particularly striking to me how this interplay of Spanish-American and North American English-speaking intellectuals produces a series or set of discourses, with some of them emphasizing the ongoing effort of uh, anti-colonial revolution in Spanish America, and others emphasizing the effort to construct a stable republicanism with a first imprint in uh, the United States, but with a potential of of other manifestations of a similar Republican project elsewhere in the world. The notion of empire becomes important here. Lazo writes of Torres, In a curious phrase that echoes Bolivar's dream of a united Spanish America, Torres ventures that it is only a matter of time until complete emancipation and the establishment of a new, powerful, and independent empire, probably under the form of a representative and central government. Torres's use of empire here for the new countries shows both the identification with the United States, Jefferson's empire of liberty, and the historically attractive usage of a term that at other points in history comes to be associated with domination and oppression. The tension between this notion of a republican empire and what Lazo elsewhere describes as the anti-colonial textuality with connections to hemispheric Americas that are characteristic of early Latino literature seems worth dwelling on to me. The tension becomes particularly salient when dealing with issues of slavery and indigeneity. This tension is especially salient in Lazo's discussion of Chico Tencal, 
which, he writes, retains a classical sense of republicanism by which virtue is located in a nameless individual. Zhuko Tenkal is described as having an alma republicana, a republican soul. And this would be in contrast to republican virtue as codified in laws that establish the rule of a people. Later in this discussion, Lazo writes, the indigenous body is lost in the veneration of the republican soul. We reached out to Dr. Sharda Balachandran Orihuela, Associate Professor of English in the Comparative Literature Program at the University of Maryland College Park and author of the book Fugitives, Smugglers, and Thieves, Piracy and Personhood in American Literature. This work examines property ownership and its connections to citizenship, race, and slavery in 18th and 19th century American literature. Professor Balachandran Orihuela, would you speak briefly about the paradox of these writers' encouragement of universal rights even as they benefited from various forms of racial, gendered, and economic privilege. How can we get a historical picture of the lives of indigenous and Afro-descendant individuals and communities in the Americas? Are there other metropoles, other ways of thinking about cartas? It is an honor to be in dialogue with such wonderful scholars and to be able to discuss Rodrigo Lasso's new book, Letters from Philadelphia, Early Latino Literature, and the Trans-American Elite. Lasso notes that Spanish letters are largely devoid of commentary on black-white relations, and I kept thinking about how the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 reconfigured race relations in Philadelphia. And it seemed to me important when considering that Torres arrived in Philadelphia in 1796, in the aftermath of the epidemic. I was thinking of the central place of the free African society during the epidemic, specifically the ways in which free black persons in Philadelphia were able to, albeit briefly and in a very limited way, turn to the public sphere in really important and crucial ways. And so I was thinking about the haunting of race in this book and in the letters Lasso examines. It seems to me this period is critical for thinking about the specter of Black Revolution, not just the American Revolution, especially in Philadelphia, during a period marked by the Haitian Revolution and the perceived threat of Black insurrection within the United States itself. I thought about how this might be a different type of dislocation that Lasso addresses. That is that these trans-American elites, to some degree, have to dislocate themselves from the racialized dynamics which they encounter in the city, not to mention in the nation. The second point I found myself thinking about, and it certainly goes without saying that this is indebted to the work of Sylvia Winter, as well as Lisa Lowe, who of course is quoted in the book itself, but I kept thinking about democratic universalism and its emphasis not on actual people, but on a disembodied universal personhood. In these letters, Lasso is able to identify a form of republicanism that de-emphasizes individual personhood as a political act. And I thought about how these ideas of democratic universalism are still founded on certain conceptions of individual liberty that rely on guarantees of freedom that are absolutely dialectically situated against the unfreedoms experienced in the new world by indigenous people and then of course enslaved persons. Finally, I found the focus on Rousseau in so much of this writing and so many of these letters to be really fascinating. It made me think of a text that I work on that was published much later in the 19th century and wasn't published in Philadelphia, but rather in Mexico. That text is El Filibustero by Mexican writer 
Eligio Ancona, published in 1864. El Filibustero is all about Rousseau, specifically Rousseau's discourse on inequality. It's foundational to the plot of this historical romance, this historical pirate romance, where an orphan raised by Franciscan priests and steeped in Rousseau's discourse on inequality turns to piracy in order to break with the codes and laws of a repressive and innately unjust colonial government. It is set in Yucatan. At the end of the novel, this pirate, along with, with his love interest, establish a small colony in the Yucatan where they're able to establish a just civil society, focusing specifically on the poor and on colonial subjects that cannot fully exist under Spanish colonial regimes. Perhaps this was Ancona's speculative articulation of an end to the caste wars of Yucatan that benefited the Maya and other dispossessed populations. Yucatan then is a space not unlike Philadelphia in that it is a revolutionary idea and it speaks to an imagined collective project of self-determination, to quote Lasso. Given that Yucatan is at the borderlands of Mexico, Spanish Mexico and Mexico, I was wondering to what degree we can think of not just Yucatan as borderlands, but also Philadelphia as being a kind of borderlands, a point made by Emily Garcia in the Latino 19th century. Certainly, it is important that Philadelphia is the most important Spanish language printing center in the early United States, but it's also not just a fixed locale in these trans-American letters, but an idea, as Lazo himself says, and an indeterminate and shifting space depending on the writerly imagination. And this too speaks to a form of archival dislocation. Professor Gonzalez, you're an expert in Chicana-Chicano studies, which has traditionally thought about spatial movement through the idea of the borderlands. That seems so different from the ocean-based mobility that made La Famosa Philadelphia an important crossroad between nations. Could the travels of someone like Servando Teresa de Mir whose story is told in this book, link Chicana-Chicano histories to those of other Latina-Latino groups? Borderland studies and Chicano and Chicana studies have conceptualized South to North mobility as primarily over land, that is on foot, by automobile, or by train. Air travel has typically not been theorized as it is seen as a privileged form of mobility reserved for the cosmopolitan elite. Travel over water has not been theorized at all, except as a brief, sometimes tragic, rite of passage across the Texas-Mexico border. What letters from Philadelphia invite scholars of the borderlands to more fully consider is something Kirsten Silva-Gruz theorized for New Orleans in Ambassadors of Culture, but has yet to be more fully developed for the lower Rio Grande Valley borderlands. That is, the Circum Gulf of Mexico that connected the borderlands with New Orleans and Tampico, and therefore Havana, Veracruz, Santo Domingo, San Juan, and all the other Spanish Caribbean ports down to Cartagena and Maracaibo. Literary studies can perpetuate the disavowal of lives that are not easily narrated through texts. For example, the lives of indigenous and Afro-descendant people. Where are these lives in the Latinx archive? And how might this book bridge the gap between 19th century Latino literature and the increasingly Latinx student populations who fill U.S. classrooms today? 
Letters from Philadelphia is part of the latest wave of studies of Latinx print culture that began with Kirsten Silva Gruz's Ambassadors of Culture and includes Laura Lomas's Translating Empire, Raul Coronado's A World Not to Come, of course, Lasso's first book, Writing to Cuba, and this trend will continue with Carmen Lamas's The Latino Continuum, uh, scheduled for publication in 2021. All these works stem to one degree or another from the Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage Project, which began as a scholarly attempt to create a counter-narrative to the Colombian quincentenary of 1992. But what has emerged is less a full archive of Latinx literature as much as a keen theorization of its apparent absence. In other words, no major literary archive has emerged to counter the notions that Latinos had nothing to contribute to the literary canon of the United States. Rather, what has emerged is the realization that the historical specifics of how archives are created, that is, as nation-building enterprises, coupled with the recognition that print culture in the Spanish-American colonies emerged differently from the British-American ones, both materially and ideologically. This realization has changed the very premise of the recovery project. Now it is less about waiting for the archive to yield previously unknown or neglected Latinx literature as much as interrogating the premises that expected such results. The study of literature does indeed place limits upon acknowledging the lives of subaltern or minoritized groups, no doubt. Studying textuality instead of literature opens the possibilities considerably, but is still limited by two dynamics that we know are heavily implicated in the perpetuation of invidious difference, archival collection, and literacy in colonial languages. One approach taken in recent scholarship is to move the definition of the archive away from official state practices in the former case, and in the latter, to expand questions of literacy to non-European languages and systems of signification. These methodological reorientations help, but there are also real limitations that mean a gap will still exist for indigenous and Afro-descent peoples. My response would be to teach the gap, that is, how it came into being historically and why it persists today. Anonymity, the disavowal of authorship, is an important strategy for some of the writers in Letters from Philadelphia. This poses a contrast to contemporary conditions of minoritized authorship under which identity and political subjectivity are often very important. Does anything in this book change the way you think about authorship? Professor Gustafson? In Chapter 4, Lazo focuses on anonymity, the disavowal of authorship, as an important strategy for some of the writers that he treats. As noted, this focus on anonymity poses a contrast to contemporary conditions of minoritized authorship, under which identity and political subjectivity are often very important. Lazo relates anonymity to a claim that he makes about early Latino literature, which he describes as a body of work that is less about the identity of individual writers and more about language in a U.S. context, in this case, Spanish out of Philadelphia and its connection to trans-American and transatlantic public spheres. 
Lazo notes that the ties that bring together the trans-American elite can be written into the affectionate rhetoric of a public political conversation. This aspect of Letters from Philadelphia relates to the work of political theorist Danielle Allen and her concept of democratic writing. In her book, Our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality, Allen emphasizes the multidimensional process that led to the production of the Declaration of Independence. This included the work of the committees of correspondence, as well as the publications of numerous political letters and pamphlets and other documents over the course of an extended period of political unrest. It also includes political discussions, conversations, deliberations, and speeches that were given over the course of months and years before the Declaration was written down. Allen's focus is on repetition and circulation of ideas in written and spoken form, and how that process ultimately crystallized in a document, the Declaration of Independence, that circulated throughout Spanish America and around the world. This focus on oral genres is especially relevant to republicanism. We also asked Professor Sharda Balachandran Orihuela about anonymity. Certainly, anonymity is not a strategy universally employed by minoritized writers in the 19th century, as evidenced in the importance of the talking book and of authorship in African-American literature in this period. However, the X of authorship made me think of the X in Latinx, which has replaced ethnic and now gender-specific terminology. In this instance, the X is an important political strategy that is perhaps most clearly reflected in the creation of Latino studies programs. I think the X also encourages us to think past the representational quality of literature and look to its discursive potential, which is also how we wrest 19th century Latino studies from the interpretive frameworks which we inherited from the civil rights movement. And so I think the task for scholars is to continuously examine the processes of racialization that might render Afro-Latinos and their texts invisible during this period. What kinds of racial migrations are made possible through movement across the hemisphere? Race, after all, is not a stable category of analysis, but varies across time and space and does so just as what counts as text does. Um, And so if we are to take the project of recovering Indigenous and Afro-Latinx lives, then we have to be attentive not only to what text is and how text can exclude certain articulations of self and the world, but also be attentive to race and racialization across time. Anonymity allows for the protection of the authors of texts deemed seditious by the Spanish colonial government as well as the fiction that the texts are articulated from the position of the Enlightenment's universal subject of reason. Both are important for different reasons, seemingly diametrically opposed. The former is about the embodiment of the author and the violence the author's body is exposed to when opposing state power. The latter is about the disembodiment of rational thought and its mode of ratiocination at the base of all universal principles of republican governance. However, these are dialectically intertwined in the specific circumstances that Philadelphia-based Latin American authors inhabited during the 1820s. Today, anonymity may indeed hinder the identification of authors minoritized either then, now, or both 
in which case present efforts to recover such authors run aground on the shoals of col the coloniality of power yet again. However, this situation is also an invitation to move to speculative modes of recovery, less bound to the dictates of the official archive. We asked all three colleagues how the terms or materials presented in this book change the way they think about a research project they are currently working on or the way they think about teaching in a particular area. Professor Balachandran Orihuela. I'm currently at work on a new book that examines U.S. multi-ethnic writers' appropriation and co-optation of radical left-wing social movements from the global south. In the body of work I'm interested in, I find that authors stage revolutions in Latin America and employ insurgencies from below as a mode for imagining a political afterlife in the United States. However, I also find that these writers employ a deterritorialized and relational use of the term global south to broadly refer to the kinds of resistant political imaginaries shared by communities of color across the hemisphere. I found Rodrigo Lasso's book to really resonate with this new book project quite a bit. And I found that thinking of Philadelphia as an idea and as an ideal is very useful for my own formulation of the afterlife of revolutions. In fact, the argument I'm hoping to make ultimately is that the deployment of revolution by U.S. multi-ethnic writers mimics the most effective counterinsurgency campaigns launched in the global south. And in integrating the insurgent politics of the Latin American left in their works, contemporary U.S. multi-ethnic writers subscribe to myths that sustain the current political climate in the global north and strengthens the legitimacy of the U.S. as a nation able to govern responsibly by controlling insurgency and terrorism in the global south. And so Lasso's book really seems to be an early articulation, but in reverse, of what I am trying to say in this new book project. And I'm finding myself thinking about Lasso's letters from Philadelphia quite a bit as I'm writing this new book. Professor Gustafson. Lazo's focus in Letters from Philadelphia is to create a history for Latino literature, to focus in on what he describes as early Latino literature and its relationship to the trans-American elite. Alan's goal with her reading of the Declaration is to revivify our sense of its emphasis on equality across a number of dimensions, and by giving us a point of access to claim it as our Declaration. Lazo's book helps us to see how that project has antecedents in early Latino writing. What I find most exciting and potentially fertile about Lazo's study is the many connections and relationships that it enables us to draw out connecting early Latino literature to a variety of other moments, places, and traditions within the United States, the hemisphere, and the Atlantic world. Professor Moran Gonzalez. Along with the other great scholarship being done in the Latino 19th century, Letters from Philadelphia has directly influenced where I'd like to go with my next monograph project. My work over the past decade has taken me in the direction of editing critical research anthologies 
such as the Cambridge Companion to Latina Latino American Literature, Cambridge History of Latina Latino American Literature, co-edited with Laura Lomas, and forthcoming next year, two volumes, Reverberations of Racial Violence, Critical Reflections on Borderlands History, co-edited with Sonia Hernandez, and Communication of Migration in Media and Arts, co-edited with Vidlan Mahatmaglu. But I'm thinking next of writing a monograph about uh, ecological thinking in the Texas-Mexico borderlands that is not so much a history of such thought as much as reflections upon ecological transformation as a speculative fiction of coloniality, as well as a transnational way of being. Uh, this has parallels with Américo Paredes' cultural notion of Greater Mexico, but much more specifically grounded in the Tamaulipan thorn scrub ecology, which stretches across South Texas and Northeastern Mexico. I'm hoping this work will be able to engage with indigenous Cohuiltecan land use relationships, Spanish and Mexican settler colonialism, Anglo land exploitation, and contemporary fronteriza, fronterizo practices. So I'll be engaging with a variety of archives both traditional and alternative, ranging from oral history, travel narratives, military documents, newspaper stories, and memoir in Spanish and English and French. It's a great time to be doing this work alongside colleagues like Rodrigo Lasso. We are going to close with a few final questions for Dr. Lasso. What are the main takeaways you want readers to retain from this book? As a general contribution, this book is a reminder of the deep history of Latinos in the United States. If you think of places such as California or Florida, then the people we call Latinos or Latinx were here before there was even such a thing as the United States. And my humble contribution is to show how Philadelphia a revolutionary U.S. site was not solely national. It was also Philadelphia, a symbol of liberation in the Americas. So as an academic study, it's an example of what can happen when we break out of the limitations of academic fields. If you were to stick by the bordered sense of what counts as U.S. history or Latin American history, or try to frame Latinx literature solely within the United States, then this type of book would not be possible. Instead, we get a new archival possibility. You express the opinion that the field of American literature, American in quotes, persistently ignores work on early Latinx writers and readers. How does your book address this situation? The field of American literature persistently ignores the history of Latinx literature because prior to the late 20th century, most Latino writing was in the Spanish language. And American literature has concerned itself primarily with English language, fiction, and poetry. So my book challenges that emphasis on English language materials, not only by bringing in Spanish, but also by expanding our notion of literature to include economic books, newspaper articles, political pamphlets, all kinds of things that uh, these writers were publishing, even scraps of paper that tell us something about the experiences of the people. 
The result is that American literature becomes not a nationalist tradition. So this uh, site, Philadelphia, that's associated with the U.S. Constitution and the founding of uh, the United States as a country becomes a connection to other parts of the America. So we're talking about Central America, South America, and then American literature becomes part of the broader Americas. What words of advice might you have for people who'd like to go deeper into the Latinx 19th century and perhaps try their hand at the kind of archival work you do in this book? The 19th century provides a very rich range of experiences that complicates what we mean by Latino or Latinx. One should never assume a single type of experience. So scholars frame 19th century identities as trans-American or almost Latino or, or errant Latino. And you, Professor Lamas, argue that many of these figures are on a continuum in terms of Latin America versus the United States. So we need to continue to study the ways that these various types of writings open new ways of thinking about Latinx literature. And I hope that younger scholars can excavate the materials that are still out there, materials that reflect on a very, very different historical period. Professor Lasso. Thank you so much for joining Professor Silva Gruez and myself today. Also, thank you to Professors Sharda Barachandran Orihuela, Sandra Gustafson, and John Moran Gonzalez for their thoughtful discussions of this important work. Finally, thank you to the wonderful colleagues at C19. We hope that our listeners will enjoy reading Letters from Philadelphia, Early Latino Literature, and the Trans-American Elite as much as we did. Let us close with Dr. Lasso reading another letter, this one from Felix Varela, a Latino who was called the father of the Irish during his lifetime, and who was one of the founders of Catholicism in New York City. Felix Varela, El Habanero El americano oye constantemente la imperiosa voz de la naturaleza que le dice... Yo te he puesto en un suelo que te hostiga con sus riquezas y te asalta con sus frutos. Un inmenso océano te separa de esa Europa, donde la tiranía, ultrajándome, oye mis dones y aflige a los pueblos. No la temas. Sus esfuerzos son impotentes. Recupera la libertad de que tú mismo te has despojado por una sumisión hija más de la timidez que de la necesidad. Vive libre e independiente y prepara un asilo a los libres de todos los países. Ellos son tus hermanos. Sí, no hay que dudarlo. Esta es la voz de la naturaleza, porque es la de la razón y la justicia. The American hears constantly the imperious voice of nature say, I have situated you on soil that assaults your senses with its riches and fruits. An immense ocean separates you from Europe, where its tyranny offends me, stomps on my gifts, and afflicts pain on my people. Do not fear it. It is impotent. Take back your liberty, which you yourself have given up as a result of a submission that stems more from timidness than from necessity. Live free and independent and prepare an asylum for free men from all countries. They are your brothers. Do not doubt that this is the voice of nature because it is the voice of reason and justice.
Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.